From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post Podcast. Welcome to the Off the Post Podcast. I'm your host, John Mattis, and today I have a roundtable of sorts, uh, three people in studio, first time ever. There is not a physical table, not even a square table, but to my left is Justin Cuthbert of The Score. What's going on, Justin? Not much, man. Good to be here. Good to see you in your uh, your element here. <laughs> and then Gus Casteros of McKean's, of Roto World, um, hockey analyst. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Rachel Dory, former OHL video coach and new hockey graphs writer. Yeah, how's it going? Good. Um, so today, uh, I got three smart people in the room. We're going to kind of go off the board a bit and talk about uh, some big picture stuff. Specifically, um, I feel like it's the dog days of hockey analysis in terms of uh, this season. You know, you get past the trade deadline, the playoffs aren't here yet. It's kind of like a dead zone. So let's talk about um, if you guys could be the commissioner for a day, what's at the top of your priority list? What do you try to get through uh, all the bureaucracy and, and what do you uh, try to change about this game? And obviously the game's awesome, but there's uh, there's changes that could always be made. Um, I'm going to start with Justin. Justin, what comes to mind when uh, you think of having the power of uh, Gary Bettman? Well, unfortunately, a lot of things come to mind. I think we, I think we gripe maybe a little bit too much. You mentioned the dog days. I think that's, uh, I think it's easy to pinpoint all the things that we'd like to change. I mean, if there was a snap of the fingers thing, I'd probably say green light the Olympics or make sure we go to a three point uh, three point system for every game. Right. But I think my kind of uh, not out of the box, but enterprise project would be uh, implementing a luxury reserve or a luxury tax. Okay. Um, it would it would have to go by a few rules to make sure that it doesn't get out of control. But I think the main thing would be each team has to. Um, abide by the salary cap entering the season then you have about two months span where you're you're analyzing your team you're seeing what what uh, holes you might have maybe there's an injury or some something that you could um, you could try to fill right because I think far too often there's in the NHL there's an, we're incentivizing teams that are trying to be bad so if we have a luxury reserve let's say on December 1 you can you can spend past the salary cap and each of those dollars are taxed and in the case of the la kings who lost jonathan quick right um they could go out and get get fed bishop early so i think obviously it would have to be meticulously designed because as we when we make changes in the nhl we often introduce more changes or more problems rather right um but i think if they had that option we'd see more teams loading up and making it more competitive i think we'd have in-season trades we'd have a better trade deadline we'd have a better playoff and we might even have super teams the uh, nfl the nfl and the nba do this do they not i think uh, the nhl is the only hard cap league um but there are rules where that you have to acquire the player that's how kevin durant um got with golden state um just sort of loop. i don't know everything about that but the loopholes allowed for it but i think for it to not get out of control you have to kind of reset for next season but i think if you if you did have that you'd have sort of an arms race mid-season and it would create a lot more com- competitive uh, uh, flow and you'd have big teams emerging and, and going after the Stanley Cup. Yeah, it's kind of meeting the salary cap parity idea 
with the the non-salary cap world of i don't know 10 15 years ago yeah. sounds like it to me anyways yeah that's that's sort of uh i guess the idea would have it would take a lot more planning but i think i want i want teams to be incentivized to go for it and i think it would make for a better league model. okay i like that what do you guys think I mean, that was one of the things that I was kind of thinking about as well because, I mean, I'll, I'm not afraid to admit it. I sat there and watched eight hours of trade deadline coverage. Yeah. There's not a whole lot going on. So I think that if you allow teams to maybe go over, um, you could definitely create more competition to be good as opposed to teams who are tanking to be bad. And to go with that, I mean, I might implement the Larry Bird rule where if you draft a player, you can sign them for x dollars and that doesn't count towards your cap okay so if you look at um a player like Connor mcdavid let's say in edmonton edmonton's gonna sign him to the world whatever he wants but it'd be cool if maybe some of those dollars didn't count against the salary cap um and i think that that might open up the door for more competition for players and maybe bidding wars you could implement a luxury tax on that if you want as well. So I think I like this. I didn't. I didn't see this coming, but both of you were apparently thinking it. I think. I think one of the examples would be with the Kevin Shattenkirk deal. Obviously, it happened in, in this day of age, but I think you could see maybe play, maybe five or six players of that ilk being traded to good teams, and you're creating like a, a really competitive atmosphere at the top of the table. Well, how often did we hear around the trade deadline that? such and such team just can't make a big move because they're up against the cap or this guy can't move because the teams that you would move them to are contenders and naturally the contenders are going to be close to the cap. So it would definitely, like you said, Rachel, <laughs> definitely uh, ramp up the entertainment around the trade deadline and GMs would definitely uh, be, have to get a little more creative, I guess. They should actually put trade deadline in this particular room because the trippy <laughs> surroundings would just make for an incredible broadcast but yeah there's some murals <laughs> you get to talk to the ear or you know this crazy piece of wood but anyway um those are great ideas i think that that's probably the way that a commissioner should go to me i think that the the way that we're assessing players and the way that it's they're going to be assessing players in the future is more important than what's kind of happening right now so what i would do as a commissioner aside from the important fact that i think concussion issues would be my first and foremost I don't really know how deep or, or, or extensive that can get, but, you know, we live in an age right now where people in their 20s and 30s are understanding that down the road, these are big, big issues. So I would try to address that. Um, but for me, I think I would try to instill the element of parity, using the quotes, right, by embracing some of the technology that's available right now if i'm commissioner i would probably implement a lot more analytics not at the nhl level but at these levels below i would sponsor the technology and give it to the chl the ncaa europe try to get as much of that implemented as as quickly as possible because the way that scouting is going and the way that everybody's kind of taking player evaluation to another level it's going to end up being a technological breakthrough and if i'm the commissioner of a league that really wants to be at the forefront of that then i think that we would take that extra step now when you say instilling more analytics do you mean uh chipping chip tracking or what do you mean well i mean you can uh, that would probably be one of the best examples but to me i'm thinking more from a philosophy perspective i'm thinking that 
people growing up now aren't going to be scouts. They're going to be analysts. They're going to be talent evaluators. If that talent evaluation is based on somebody going to an arena and watching a game, it's all fine and good. There's going to be technology that's available to just hobbyists. And those hobbyists are likely going to be the analysts of the future. Once that old guard starts to move out, I think that the new element is not going to necessarily embrace what they were doing in the past. They're going to try to implement a more of their particular findings of today. And to what they're finding today is what they're going to be implementing in the future. So you would take more of a futuristic, you could say, approach to the situation and go, this is what's going to happen in 20 years. Let's get ahead of the curve and get it to the grassroots or not even necessarily grassroots, but junior levels. And I would be the one to say, this is going to be our league and we are going to be at the forefront of technology. We understand what's going down 10 years down the road. So we want to be ready and prepared to be able to, pr to give every one of our franchise owners. And remember, he's the commissioner of the fran the, the owners. Yeah, that's is, the caveat. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's who his boss is. Yeah. So if I'm saying, John, I want you to be just as competitive as Rachel. And Rachel, I want you to be just as competitive as Justin. Then I need to give everybody an equal share and say, okay, I'm giving you the tools. It's your job to be competitive now. Yeah, uh, that's sort of the underlying theme of, of being a commissioner for a day is that you report to the owners. And as much flack as Gary Bettman gets, the owners have been pretty happy with him. Hence why he has a, a job, I believe, his contract's through 2022. So he's not going anywhere anytime soon. And I do like where you're going with uh, the analytics approach and being a forward-thinking league and maybe going below your league and helping out the scouts. But I wonder, wouldn't the first step be actually getting, you know, chips in the jerseys and in the pucks, get the NHL in order first from that perspective and then go below? What do you think? Well, I mean, not from the technological perspective. By the time a player hits the NHL, you know what you have. You know what the product is. So now all you're doing is really measuring performance. There might be some things that you get, um, in particular from an aging curve perspective. But now, the way that the league is gone, you're 30 and you're out of the league. So you need to know what's kind of going on between the moment you're drafted till about the time that you hit free agency. And you can do that with little chips and stuff like that. But you know essentially what the player is doing. It's the unknowns that you don't have a very good read on. And those are the players that could make the difference between one owner to the other, one team being more competitive than the other. And if you really do want to have a good competitive league and have everybody in, a, in the race for a playoff spot till the end, that's the best way to do it. Yeah, uh, you make a good point with tying it into the way that the games would be played. It would presumably be tighter. There wouldn't be guys falling through the cracks. And, you know, say they get... Um, noticed at 15 you see their development in the data as well as scouting so i like this i like this gus it's the room it's all this yeah the room's just... bringing out your creativity i can <laughs> tell uh rachel what do you think uh what, what's your if you were commissioner for a day and you're 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 a young lady and you know one day you want to do big things in this industry let's just say you know, 30, 40 years down the road you are gary bettman that's a, i know that's frightening but that's what what it, what are you doing uh, on the first day? Um, I think the analytics is a good um, approach, as is the concussions. Um, something I hope will be gone by the time I get to the NHL is the shootout. I mean, I'm so yeah. disenchanted with it. It's not exciting, especially with three-on-three. -three. And when you consider that you have to have the dry scrape and then the shootout, 
you might as well just have 10 minutes of three on three, and I guarantee you most games will end because there's just so many scoring chances. You look at the Ottawa-Tampa Bay game the other day. I mean, it was end-to-end, two-on-ones, breakaways. So if, air quote, time yeah. is of the essence, just play three on three. It's The game will end faster than this dry scrape and a skills competition. No, I agree. I, I had three on three for 10 minutes written down here. So we're on the same page, Rachel. And I think I threw it out there once on Twitter and, and someone responded kind of a counter argument that, are you sure the players would be okay with these star players playing an extra, I don't know how many minutes it would end up being over over the course of a season, but... I'm sorry, they're getting paid how much? Yeah, I know. Well, I didn't think it was the greatest argument because, you know, games will be, will be done quicker. There won't be the shootout. I think over time they end up playing less. Maybe they exert a little more energy, but their job is to play hockey. I don't know. Yeah, and I think, um, so that's sort of changed the game at the NHL level. But in terms of, I think the NHL needs to have a greater outlook of where the game is. So if you look how big FIFA is, so soccer, you look how big the NFL is, um, the NHL needs to go to the Olympics. You need to grow the game because whether they like it or not, in the big four sports, they're fourth. And they aren't doing a good enough job of growing the game in places where um, the game isn't big. So obviously they want to go to China. I know there's talk of a preseason game there. But the Olympics is the biggest stage everybody on earth is watching. And if injuries and insurance is the problem, the players are going. They don't care. They're going. Ovechkin said he's going. Voracek says he's going. You might as well go and use it as a tool to market the game. Because at the end of the day, if you grow the game, there's more money. And if there's more money, the owners are happy. So, I mean... Yeah, if you follow that line of thinking, it makes a lot of sense. Justin, I think you were about to say something. Uh, Yeah, I was going to touch on the point previous, but it goes back to whether it's Korea or China. They obviously want to go to China because that's a larger untapped market. But it's, it's almost negligent to think that like you said the world's watching they're watching when it's in korea they're going to watch when it's in china i guess they believe there's a lot of um, untapped potential for athletes in china but but i feel like korea is also a big enough center to to justify going I mean, there that's i don't I really understand it so, but it, it is very strange how they they pick that and not the other there's obviously way more politics into it but it just seems like a no-brainer and to me it's i think it's amazing that nbc who owns the olympics and owns the NHL, is not making sure it happens. One of the main reasons I th- I decided to go with the topic of being a commissioner for a day is I was listening to the Bill Simmons podcast recently, and he had P.K. Subban on, and Subban was asked, you know, would you ever think about uh, being commissioner down the line? And he said, yeah, yeah, maybe that's something I'd be into. So I started thinking, okay. And one of the <clears throat> ideas Subban brought up was um, trimming the schedule. Obviously, they play 82 games each right now. What do you guys think? Uh, Subban went all the way down to 16 like the NFL. I don't know if he was uh, completely serious about it because that seems bizarre and um, just an insane change. Um, What what would be the perfect amount of games? uh, Maybe start with Gus. I know that 82 games doesn't really seem like Vogue and and, and it's – I, I might be the only one to think that I actually think that's a good amount of games. It's not the regular season that's too long. It's the playoffs that are too long. So to me, I think if you want to pick a, a number maybe more or less for athletes and from games per week, 
you could probably go down to like maybe 65 or 66 or whatever the case is. But I actually think 80, 82 games is just fine for the regular season. Figure out a way to keep hockey out of June. That's more important. I think uh, for me, I've, I've done a little bit of talking to maybe some OHL guys because ours is a little bit shorter. Um, one of the problems is why on earth are teams playing 11 preseason games? Yeah. Cut that out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like I said, to, like to as to Gus's point, um, the playoffs don't need to go into mid June. You can do what um, Major League Baseball does, where less teams make the playoffs. Now I get it; that's revenue. Um, the more games you play, the, the more revenue that's involved, and that's why the NHL won't trim the schedule. But realistically, how much money are you making on preseason games? The games mean nothing. If you want to trim the schedule itself down, I would say. Um, maybe 68 games. The way the bye week was this year, um, and they say they want to keep that, It the Leafs are playing 15 games in 28 days or something like that. Oh, that's insane. Like that. That's not safe. No. So if you want the bye week and you want the long playoffs, you got to chop the preseason down, and you probably need to go down to 68 or 72 games because you can't ask guys to be playing every other day. That's not good for their bodies. Yeah, it's odd because the players agreed, obviously, to the bye week. It was part of the World Cup negotiation pro- process, and it's ongoing. They've they've said, all right, let's do it again next year. So we'll see a condensed schedule again, or I guess it's the new normal. Uh, not as condensed because the World Cup's not involved, but... But the Olympics are. Yeah, well, hypothetically, the Olympics are. <laughs> what do you think, Justin? What's the perfect number? Well, yeah, the Olympics would make it even I guess. Yeah. I think, I think 66 would probably be the perfect number. But okay. but that's Josh Sang's number. You can't do that. Uh, yeah, I guess that's, yeah, that's taboo. Um, so we'll go with 68. Don't say 67. <laughs> Not allowed. Don't do no. that in this um, Yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, as a selfish hockey fan, I don't want the playoffs touched. I think it's I – mean, if we get down to five games, I think you're flipping a coin even more than we already are. Um in, I think we'd see a better quality in the game if it was shorter. You had a little bit more time. We eliminated the back-to-backs. Um, but I think that's one thing that you that will never shorten because they just can't afford to take that, that pay cut. Well, yeah, how, how hard of a sell would it be, right, to these owners? Hey, guys, we've got a great idea. We're going to play 10 less games per team, and your revenue is going to fall and not have really a solution for it other than – you know, your players going to be rested. It's going to be more entertaining, you know, those 70 games that are left. That would be a very difficult sell. And even if the game is discernibly better for a decade, you can't make up that cost. No, it's true. The one thing about cutting down the schedule, too, you will definitely cut down on the number of teams playing back-to-back where they're playing a rested team on that second night because that is a crazy issue across the board. Mm-hmm. And in some geographical areas, it's just not fair the way that it gets scheduled. So. Yeah, if you look at teams like uh, L.A. or San Jose, to be playing a, a back-to-back, let's say they play um, Anaheim one night, and then they got to go play in St. Louis the next night. Like, that is That travel is terrible. So I would say, yeah, in terms of schedule-wise, eliminate the back-to-backs, but if you want to have your bye week, and then you can't really do anything because you're not going to sell the owners. So it's one of those things where you can't have your cake and eat it too kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. Um. I had a couple um, other things on on the table or on my on my notepad here. I don't know if this is even really. It's definitely not super important, but it's kind of gained some traction. Where 
the defenseman position, maybe you change the name because they're not in today's NHL. Are they really just straight playing defense? This is something that's rampant on hockey Twitter. I would probably put it down as like, way, you know, maybe the thirtieth thing to do if I was commissioner. But what do you guys think? Do you care enough to even discuss changing defenseman to I don't know Rover or I don't know some other name that is something more creative than Rover? I I don't think it matters. I mean, I think I think people who enjoy hockey and really dive into hockey understand that defensemen are more than people more than skaters who block shots and and uh, push people around in the corners. That's I think we underestimate the hockey fan at all times. I think the false parody thing goes back to this too. We understand that 500 is not exactly 500 because of the way the points are right. But smart hockey fans and, of course, everyone in the game who's involved in making transactions understands that their team is not measuring up. And even though they're above 500, <laughs> they are not actually above 500. Because they have 10 OT losses. So when we talk about defensemen, it goes back to the same thing. If you, I don't understand how that it would change the way we look at the game. If defensemen are called rovers fine but defensemen are involved in the play as much as any other player on the ice and it's their job is to be transition players if you want to call it a transition player that's fine but i think everyone who's involved in the game should know that that's what a defenseman's job is two prong rachel i think you like rolled your eyes when i brought this up so i want to hear what you have to say okay i went on a bit of a twitter rant today oh did you i didn't see that um being a defenseman because I'm very much tired of people complaining that there's only 10 number one D-men in the NHL. And they are Chris Letang, Eric Carlson, Brent Burns. And I, what I basically said was there's a difference between being a number one D-man and being a Norris-level D-man. Right. So there's there are 30 teams in the NHL, so there have to be 30 number one D-men. Right? And just because you are not Eric Carlson, who is a rover... Um, that doesn't mean you're not a defenseman. So, yes, I think they should stay defensemen. But this narrative that there's only a couple number one D-men in the NHL, no. There's a couple Norris-level defensemen, which are generally offensive defensemen. So you look at uh, like Brent Burns and Eric Carlson and Chris Letang. Um, not really defensive defensemen anymore are, are winning. It's more the rover types that are winning, so maybe – I don't know, create an award for the best rover or have a defensive defenseman award. But to say that, yes, the position is changing, you can't be a glacier on the back end anymore. <laughs> um, you don't necessarily have to change a name, but to say that somebody like Ryan Suter isn't a good defenseman um, is just, it's incorrect. Yep. Because he is, he just plays the game differently. He doesn't have the same skating ability that some of the other guys do, but that doesn't mean he's not an effective defender. You do hit on a good point, though. I, I just feel like there's always just three defensemen that are up in you know up in the clouds, and everyone else is getting looked down upon. Whereas, yeah, they're elite, but there's other guys who are number one quality or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So my big thing is, so you have your Norris level demon, um, Burns, Carlson, Latang, Hedman, um, Ekblad's getting up there. Number one demon in the NHL, um, guys like Giordano. Dustin Bufflin's a number one D-man. Um, I would even say Mark Edward Vlasic, who plays in San Jose behind Burns, but if you put him on the Leafs, you put him on the Flyers, you put him 
almost any other team yeah. they're number one d-men so that's not to say that there aren't number one d-men there's just not an influx of norris candidate defensemen they don't just appear out of the sky <laughs> it's true gus i don't know if you have any strong feelings about this I just think that the position has changed dramatically over the years and there are certain things like we don't need puck rushers anymore. An outlet pass, a stretch pass, that's essentially what the league has gone to. Um, You still need mobility and I have a feeling that most people do not, uh, sorry, they, they equate mobility with the ability to rush and that's not necessarily true. Skating is one thing, carrying the puck is a very, very different thing. Um, Dustin Bufflin is essentially what Brett Burns has become. Bufflin was Burns' five years ago but just not with the same kind of components right and burns has just essentially solidified that type of air quotes again rover position Uh, a guy that supports the rush is less effective defensively so it's up to a coach to figure out that hole and that gap and to try to figure out the strategy behind that so the the position itself has changed uh changing the name to something other than defenseman. I mean, we could do that to kind of satisfy, I guess, the masses. But in the end, I like the differentiation between a forward unit versus a defensive unit because they have different responsibilities. Leading up to the NHL, I would not want somebody that hasn't played defense their entire life to be playing defense because what happens is you get Jake Gardner who can just do all kinds of stuff in the offensive zone and stink the joint up in the defensive zone. So there's a there's a distinct divide, I think, between the two that I think that we still do need to address. And calling a player a rover just because he's more supportive of the offense and not necessarily as good defensively, that might sound all great, but I, I don't know if I really buy into that philosophy. There, nope. There's another major component there. If, if you want to call every defenseman in the NHL a rover, are we going to call yeah. Roman Polak a rover now? <laughs> This is true. So, you know, if you're going to special, you have to specialize it. Maybe you can do that. <laughs> we can we can call. You have to fit a certain criteria to become a rover. But I just don't think that's feasible. Wouldn't the rover just be an offensive defenseman at that point? Which there is absolutely reason to call them. And I'm not calling Roman Polak a rover. Well, I think the main argument to to not I don't even know if you want to officially change the name but to to refer to them differently is that they do so much work in the neutral zone in transition that you know just having the name defenseman makes is is kind of misleading that's that's kind of the the counter argument I don't I don't really think it's it's a, a huge deal and think of how hard it would be to 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 go you know around the world essentially and go we have changed the name of this position it would take years and years to really convince people at the nhl level it'd be a little easier you got your fans listening to broadcasts and whatnot but in a rink in i don't know timmins or somewhere in finland when they're teaching little kids they're gonna go well i thought we were i thought it was a defenseman now i'm something different i don't understand you know what i mean so you'd be alienating a large portion of the hockey hockey fandom by doing that because there's people that don't listen to podcasts they don't listen to they don't read blogs there's a lot of people who would be completely confused and taken aback by a change the first time they heard it on a broadcast absolutely somebody say that they read their stats in the newspaper the other day and i turned to them and said what (laughs) (laughs) okay so there's those people that i think you would lose because if they saw like the national post print a thing that said oh they're called rovers now all of that old school mentality would just check right out. Oh, yeah. Easily. Scouts could sometimes refer to players as dogs, too. So, unless you're a hip hop <laughs> god, you know, just calling a player a rover 
kind of goes down that path rather yeah. than Oh yeah, you're just setting yourself up for a lot of uh, awkward conversations. All right, guys, we're gonna switch uh, our focus here and talk about the playoffs, specifically the NHL teams, or sorry, the Canadian NHL teams uh, involved or to be involved. So uh, the way we look at the playoffs right now, it is Thursday night, so this is excluding Thursday night's games. Um, we have four Canadian teams in a spot, and then we have Winnipeg and Va- and Vancouver who are basically out. Uh, Toronto has a chance, um, but they're on the outside looking in right now. By the end of this podcast, they could be in a playoff spot. We'll see. But uh, I'm curious um, between the three of you, I guess the four of us, if, if I'm included as well, what we can uh, get up to here in terms of determining which Canadian team might go the furthest. Uh, Justin, do you have any theories? Is it Montreal, Ottawa, Calgary, Edmonton? My answer would probably be whoever plays the Ducks. Okay. Um, I think the Canadians and Senators are going to have a really tough time with New York and Boston unless Boston's run carries them uh, to the top seed in the Atlantic. Uh, I think Calgary's the most capable team right now. Uh, I'm not sure how that's going to shake out. But if Anaheim lands in the second or third seed in the Pacific, whoever they match up against, I think will have the best chance. I'm not overly optimistic about all four of them, the Maple Leafs. Um, if they squeak in, they're going to have a obviously a really tough, really tough time with the Washington Capitals. It kind of comes down to the fact that there's no Canadian teams in the Metro, so your chances in the Eastern Conference um, increase exponentially there. Um, because Montreal, as it stands, is going to face New York, the New York Rangers. Okay, that's difficult. Ottawa's playing uh, Boston off the hop as of now, so. At least they're not, you know, Montreal and, and Ottawa aren't facing each other. So hypothetically, they could uh, get into the second round and face each other. Um, and then in the Pacific, as Justin alluded to, it's Anaheim versus Calgary right now. And then Edmonton is playing the Sharks right now. So, uh, Gus, I, I don't know if you've looked at the uh, the standings and, and thought about which team you think can kind of squeak through. Because the way that the, the format is, it, it's, it comes down to matchups within your little bracket. I'm kind of with Justin on this one. I think anybody that ends up playing the Ducks is going to essentially kind of go through. The Ducks are a bit of a, a mirage, I feel. You know, I, it's, I like Ottawa. I think Ottawa can beat Boston. I'm very skeptical of the goaltending because it's just not there. I like Anderson and all of that, but with his wife going through whatever she's going through, you just don't know. The blue line is a little bit less than stellar than I'd want, but I think Ottawa has a better chance of beating the Bruins than Montreal does of beating the Rangers. So if I had to make a choice from the East, it would probably be Ottawa. Okay. And Rachel? I think um, to start, if this year isn't an example of why the playoff format needs to go back to 1-8, to I don't know what is. Because if you look at the Metro, it's a juggernaut. And why are Pittsburgh and Washington going to play in the second round or Columbus? That's just not right. But I'm of the mindset that right now – for whatever reason, the Rangers cannot beat the Cavs in the playoffs. So if Carey Price is the Carey Price that we know he can be, um, I think that could be a pretty good series. Um, they need to do something about Alexi Emelin on the blue line, ideally not play. Um, and I think that Carey Price has a chance to, to really help them there. But with Calgary being the way they are... Um, Right now, they're getting pretty good goaltending from Brian Elliott. 
Um, Johnny Goudreau and Sean Monahan are finally finding their stride, and they're not even performing at top level right now, but they are on that upslope. The 3M line has to be one of the best in the league, and I think that with the speed of the Ducks, the Randy Carlisle coached Ducks, um, they're going to have a big problem shutting that down because not only is the 3M line uh, very good in the offensive end, they're very good defensively. I mean, Michael Backlund could be up for the Selkie this year. Uh, Matthew Kachuk is, from what I understand, a terrible human being to play against. Like, he's annoying. <laughs> yeah. And he's big, so <laughs> they're tough to deal with. Um, so I think from that perspective, and I also, for whatever reason, I don't see a team shutting down McDavid for four games. Okay. So if Talbot shows up, I think that nobody stands out to me because it's all contingent on one player, whereas yeah. like Calgary has that. Everybody's clicking right now. The only thing that'll let Calgary down is their goaltending. So it's it's kind of a mix right now. Yeah, you're not you're not landing on one team here. No, I'm not. And I think <laughs> that the Leafs are – I don't think anybody would want to play them in the playoffs because they've got that skill and their young players are unpredictable. But good luck beating Braden Holby four times in seven games. Yeah, because the chances of them not being the second wild card and facing the Capitals are pretty slim. I mean, they got to make the playoffs in general. Yeah, I would say they'd have to finish where they have 14 games left. Yeah, something like that. I would say they'd have to win 11 of those in regulation to not be in the wild card to actually be in the Atlantic. And I think they can beat anybody in the Atlantic. They've shown that. Um, Like, Ottawa wouldn't scare me if I'm the Leafs. And Boston really wouldn't either right now. Because they don't play. The Toronto plays a game that matches well against Boston. Let's talk about the Oilers for a minute. Um, do you guys think that they have it in them at this stage in their development as a team to win a round? I mean, Connor McDavid is on their team. Gus, do you know? You could probably give Connor McDavid four or five points a game, but you still have to outscore your opponents by four or five goals. So, you know, I can give him the benefit of the doubt that he'll be a beast and play like a madman every single game, but I don't have a lot of confidence in that blue line to the degree that I just – he could be a superstar and go out and kick some butt, but I don't think that the Oilers overall have enough to be able to win an entire round, especially against a team like the Sharks, and I'm just kind of using that matchup. In right. Into, well, that's the current matchup, so. So, yeah. It definitely depends on the, the matchup with Edmonton, I think if they meet Anaheim, which is also a sort of a top-heavy team with talent, um, that they can match up well there. Um, but I think the Sharks are going to be a little bit, especially fresh in the first round, a little too deep, uh, a little too balanced up and down, to, and they'll be able to exploit some matchups and probably get an, take enough of a hunk out of uh, Connor McDavid to, uh, to win four of the seven games. Yeah, I think that would be a huge upset if the Oilers were able to even take, like, three games from the Sharks. The Sharks are, you could argue, is a Stanley Cup favorite, probably one of, one of I don't know, three or four or five. Yeah, I would say matchup is key. I don't see them beating the Sharks. Um, I do see them beating the Ducks. I also, I think the Central, um, they match up well against St. Louis. But, I mean... That blue line doesn't instill a lot of confidence. I mean, yes, Adam Larson is good, but <laughs> he's not your playoff rugged 
he's not experienced, then that's the problem with this team that they've got no playoff experience. Cam Talbot's played really, really well. Um, and you know what a hot goaltender can do in the playoffs. So it does depend on matchup. I do see them beating the Ducks, though, if, if they win, because I just think that they move the puck too quickly. They would have the edge in net. Um, and they're just speed-wise, the better their power play is, is better. And it's really effective how they use the pieces of their power play. If you guys are thinking of all the Canadian teams, all seven of them, which one stands out as the most surprising? So if you look or if you think back to your preseason expectations, which one has exceeded them? And which one are you looking at and going, they're not what I thought they were. They're actually a lot better. Vancouver is probably the surprise. I expected them to be where Colorado is. And they're okay. Not. That's that's, that's essentially the, the bottom line on that one. We could easily say the same thing about the Leafs, but I don't know. I, I think that the unpredictable nature of having so many young, vibrant with like super talents that nobody's really got a good read on um, kind of brought them to the level where they are now. Second thing is if Tampa Bay didn't stink up the joint all season long, they wouldn't be in this position. And I think that some of the other teams, Florida stumbling. So I think that the Leafs got a little bit of help. By yeah, some teams absolutely. Stinking it up. And so I, I while I, I think that people are probably going to say, oh, the Leafs bettered our expectations. I think they played essentially what they were going to do. They were going to play well for a few games. They're going to stink up the joint a few games. But Vancouver should have been at the bottom, and they're not. So that is my surprise team. I didn't see that coming, but it makes sense because Vancouver has done a lot to excuse themselves from the basement, which if you're a Canucks fan, I don't know where you'd land on that. You probably want them to be in the basement considering uh, the state that their roster's in. Uh, Rachel, who, who has exceeded expectations? I would say um, Vancouver as well. I expected them to be um, maybe not Colorado, but definitely Arizona level bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, Colorado's like historically bad. So saying oh that you gosh, you I expected them to be like that is it's pretty tough to I say. I watched the Avalanche Detroit game the other day, and wow, wow it was yeah, terrible. Um, <laughs> I would say yeah, Vancouver doing um, what they're doing. Ryan Miller is playing excellent hockey. Um, Ottawa for me, when I looked at the numbers this year, and everyone's like, ooh, look at the numbers. Um, they didn't stand out to me. None of their stuff was really good, but they have Boucher and Crawford. And what Boucher has done is allow Carlson to really run that team from the back end. And I think that teams really were not prepared for that. So that's a surprise to me. I would say the Leafs are. A bit of a surprise, but not as a team. Mitch Marner was a surprise. I knew he'd make the team because he was good enough. I didn't think he'd be this developed at this stage. Um, so those are one from the East, one from the West, and then one particular player himself. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with you in terms of the Leafs being more surprising on an individual basis. You know, this guy, this guy, this guy. But as a team, I mean... They might not make the playoffs, and did people think they're going to make the playoffs? Probably not. So more or less um, where we thought they'd be. They thirteenth by one, and then ESPN had them at fourteenth. So they're exceeding expectations. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Justin? It's funny with Vancouver is they always seem to be they play up a little bit to what their level is, and I think that always comes back. I always wonder what it is, but then I always come back to goaltending because I do receive 
um, capable goaltending from their number one and their number two, and it has been like that for a while. I think they keep them a little higher than they should be. Uh, I think for me, it would probably be Ottawa. Um, I wasn't, I didn't think that they wouldn't make the playoffs, but I didn't think the transition to Boucher with Carlson especially would be as seamless as it's been. I'm still trying to figure out Ottawa, to be honest. I, I you watch them and you, and sometimes you think they're world beaters and at other times you can't believe they are where they are in their standings. Yeah. They're um, tricky to get a handle on. But so many up and down games. Yeah. It's, and, and they're really entertaining to watch. I, I'm, I have a lot of respect for obviously the, the job uh, Boucher has done this year and Carlson's really bought into the entire game plan and w- done exactly what Boucher, I'm not obviously in their dressing room, but he seems to be implementing exactly what Boucher wants. And uh, it's paying off right now. And, and that's the team that they had that run with him and they just sort of, there's always that something extra and, and maybe that they'll be able to carry that a little farther than we think they will. All right. One last uh, round table question here. Heart Trophy, um, there's about 10 to 14 games per team left, so 80 or so percent of the season is over. Not much will change from now until the end of the season, maybe a little bit. Uh, Gus, who's who's at the top of your Heart Trophy ballot? It would probably be Connor McDavid. I mean, okay. he's just had such a glorious season, and, and taken Edmonton to where they are, he's taken Edmonton to where they are. So I feel that if you want to really get down to the definition of the most important player for their team, you take McDavid out of that roster, and they're not even bothering to make the playoffs. So that guy's got the hard trophy for me. How about you, Rachel? I'm definitely agreeing there. I mean, you look at where the Oilers were last year when Connor was out. Um, they were a tire fire, to be quite <laughs> honest. Um, and this year, basically, he's made Maroon look good. He's made Latestu look good. Guys who um, wouldn't necessarily be playing where they are, it's on the back of him and Cam Talbot. I think that uh, San Jose's too deep for Burns to get legitimate consideration. And as much as it pains me to say it, um, if the Bruins finish top in the Atlantic, you have to consider Brad Marchand because he has as many goals in the month of March as the New Jersey Devils. Wow. I did not know that statistic. Eight goals. Wow. Yeah. So I think... He's definitely made a strong case for himself, especially in the second half. Absolutely, yeah. So I'd look at... And then you, you can never leave out Crosby because he's Sidney Crosby, and that's just kind of what it is. So I think it, it will come to a combination of those four. Now, who gets in and who's out is... We'll see, but I would give it to Nick. It's sort of amazing how things changed. I mean, it seemed like it was etched in stone, both the Norris and the and the Hart Trophy with, with Connor McDavid, or at least the nominees with McDavid, Crosby, and Burns. Um, I think I think the next 14 games will decide it. I think if either Eric Carlson or Brad Marchand leads their team to the Atlantic Division title, I think they warrant at least a nomination each, uh, especially if they, consider on the, if they continue on the trajectory that they're on now. Uh, I think if the, if the Oilers finish in the in the top three, I think it's probably Connor McDavid's to lose. But it's it's amazing how we were lauding Sidney Crosby for his goal scoring earlier this season, and he still has probably better. I think he does still have a better points per game rate than anyone right now, and I feel like he's slipping in the race when he's he's been as effective or more effective than anyone else that we're we're considering. So it it is a, it's I I welcome this this late surge where we're going to see all the 
all the awards sort of play out in the next month or so. But I think Crosby might have a nose out on uh, McDavid for me right now. I lied. We got one more question. And it's going to be, I was thinking about it when you're talking about Crosby and slipping and rising again. Um, Thoughts on the Calder Trophy? Gus, is it Line A, Matthews, or someone else? Like, I mean, we're so close to the end of the season, i got to ask you guys. If, if Patrick Liney ends up winning the Rocket Richard Trophy, he deserves the Calder. If you come in as a teenager and beat everybody else in the NHL by scoring the most goals and you need goals to win, then you deserve that Calder Trophy. Having said that, I feel that the performance that Austin Matthews has put on, and I get Mitch Marner's skill and all that, and that's fine. But with the pressure and the type of game that Matthews plays and with very little support around him in consideration to the type of support that Patrick Liney's got, Matthews probably should get the nod. Now, if we're really being <laughs> more You're going another layer detailed, yeah. Zach Wierenski deserves the Calder Trophy. He, there is no way that a defenseman should be doing what he's doing at that age. And you just saw glimpses on the Calder Trophy, uh, sorry, on the Calder Cup run last yep. year. And, and, you know, Wierenski should get it. He won't. It'll be Austin Matthews. So if you were voting, you would probably. It would be Wierenski. Okay. Rachel, do you have a favorite? I would say um, there are four people that are in consideration right now. One won't even get officially nominated. Um, you can make an argument for each. So Patrick Line, if he wins the Richard, absolutely deserves the Calder. Um, Austin Matthews has been playing with Zach Hyman and Connor Brown and is still putting up amazing point levels. He's also playing center, and that is a m- much more difficult position to play. And a lot of minutes, too. A lot, and he's playing hard minutes. Yeah. Um, Zach Wierenski, rarely do you see a young defenseman come in and, and do what he's done. He's revolutionized that blue line. Well, when he's 19, it's not like he's 25 like Nikita Zaitsev, exactly. right? Exactly. Like, and then the one guy who I think has been forgotten in all of this because of last spring is Matt Murray. If Pittsburgh wins the President's Trophy or um, the top of the Metro, I think he definitely deserves it. Mm. Yes, he has a cup already, but he is still a rookie, and he has made some absolute timely saves for the Penguins this year. He's been really good, so I think those four, I mean... I think Murray should absolutely be considered... You think about last year with Panarin, people are going, oh, he's so old. Like, these are the rules. Murray qualifies, so there's no reason why he should be pushed aside. Exactly, and he's a goalie, too, like, to make it. So I think you've got four. Um, I would say, yeah, if Line wins the Richard, then he'll get the Calder. Otherwise, I think Matthews will get it, um, just because... You have the Toronto hoopla yeah. about it, and I don't care what anybody says. The Toronto hoopla means something when it comes to to the voting. And but who would you pick? Like, forget about um, what uh, what you think people will do if you if had a Toronto vote. Toronto makes the playoffs. I give it to Matthews. Otherwise, I give it to Murray. Okay, Justin. Yeah, as much as it should be four people uh, or four players in consideration, it's probably only two at this point. Yeah. It's funny how we kind of the, – the rules are self-serving. It was self-serving for Panarin last year, and now we kind of – oh, but he's won a Stanley Cup, so we were, we're immediately scratching Murray off. Um, yeah, it, it definitely depends how it, it plays out. The con- the punch counter punch all year is going to go down to the last few games. If Matthews is strong down the stretch and the Leafs make the playoffs, I don't know how they're going to uh, not give it to him unless Line A wins the last <laughs> year. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because – 
some years you're like, I don't know. I think it was like the Neil Yakupov rookie class. It was just like there was no one standing out. And then you look this year, you can probably legitimately pick four, maybe five guys if you want to throw on Marner. He's had a Calder-like year. Um, guys, thanks for uh, for coming in. And uh, it's always fun to do it in studio. And I think the roundtable thing worked out. It was a first-time thing, but... Uh, before you guys go, I'll get your uh, Twitter handle so people can uh, give you a follow. Justin, yours is? JC Cuthbert. Sweet. And Gus? Cats Hockey with a K. Sweet. And Rachel? Mine's just Rachel Dory. And how do you spell Dory? D-O-E-R-R-I-E. There you go. All right. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot, guys.